Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you who happen to cross our broadcast, uh, podcast, webcast, uh, whatever kind of cast you may be uh, accessing us on. Uh, It's our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's certainly where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So if you've got a question about a part of the Bible that maybe has eluded your understanding, maybe you'd like to get a little bit more up close and personal with a favorite verse of yours and uh, be able to uh, wrap your mind a little bit more around it, we'd love to be able to help you in that uh, endeavor. Uh, Maybe you'd like to apply the truths that we find in God's Word in a personal way. Hey, uh, wherever you'd like to go in the Bible, we'd love to go there with you. Uh, Just uh, let us know where you'd like to go, and we will We'll uh, do our best to answer your questions. Only one standard uh, for the questions that we answer here on the broadcast. Just make sure that it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from God's Word, we'll be happy to tackle it. Uh, Tough questions you've been asked about the Christian faith. Uh, Maybe you'd like a take on the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. We are all over it. Uh, But wherever we go, entirely up to you. We're looking forward to your questions on the Word of God. Joined here again by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richard. Sean, good to have you back up and at him again. Good to be back. It's never fun to be sick, but such is the case when you work with the children. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, kind of an occupational hazard. Uh, Sean, if people want to get their questions to us, how can they do that? Well, if you're joining us online, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you can take advantage of that as well at any time of day. As a quick side note, we want to encourage everyone listening to the purpose of that is to send us your Bible questions. So if you feel the uh, intrusive thoughts, as the kids today say, to sign us up for a seminar or any uh, other <laughs> newsletters, and I'm not... Uh, Uh, joking. People are doing that right now. We want to encourage you to use that email address for its intended purpose. Even if you think there may be some association, please don't uh, do that, as they say. If you want to send us your Bible questions, again, sincere Bible questions are welcome at that email address. If you'd like it spelled out for you, we'll have it available at the bottom of the screen. Also on our visual live streams, which are on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face, as well as to send us your questions on the right-hand side of the screen, or to take future note for the broadcast and sending us your questions with that email address. We'll have that in a banner, as well as the time that we have remaining as it uh, counts so furtherly on. Note as well, our social media platforms are Facebook and YouTube. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified when we are going live. However, since they don't always like what we have to say, and by always, I mean 
always. always. Um, <laughs> feel free to join us on our website. If you're not getting those notifications, we can't, of course, be banned on our own platform yet. So note, those are your options. YouTube, A Reason for Hope, Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. The C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Click on the Watch Live tab or just bookmark ccftucson.online.church, and we'll be keeping an eye on the questions as they're being sent in, as well as our email address as the broadcast unfolds, and sincerest apologies to those of you who sent questions during my uh, leave of absence. Uh, We'll be getting to those today as well. If they aren't addressed during the broadcast with priority, we will, of course, appreciate it if you would send them along to us in the chat if you're listening. But with all that said, of course, I don't think that habit has changed while we're gone. We want to take a moment to pray before we get started. Let's, Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you that you're present here. Uh, to lead your children into all truth. Thank you, Lord, for being such a good shepherd of our hearts. Uh, Lord, you know how to guide us to green pasture and still water where our souls can be restored. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that, that you would move upon our lives, and that we would uh, come to the end of this broadcast today uh, with a deeper and uh, more uh, committed and and, uh, wonderful and intimate relationship with you than we've ever had before. Thank you, Lord, that your word is fully adequate to be able to do all this and so much more. Guide us through the power of your spirit, and may your son Jesus be glorified as a result. In his name and for his sake, amen. That is true. Now, we received a question by email, but before we get into that, I forgot to ask and clarify, is there anything to talk about regarding prophecy updates? Uh, just a, a few uh, items real real quickly. Uh, things are beginning to heat up a bit in the Middle East, a lot of it uh, revolving around Uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, that is the Iran nuclear deal, does appear that uh, the uh, European nations and the United States are going uh, full speed ahead. Uh, In terms of wanting to see this uh, agreement come about, uh, there was a bit of a concession made by the Iranians in that they would allow uh, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps to continue to be listed as a terrorist organization uh, by the United States, uh, but uh, they'll just continue to fund them anyway. It doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. Uh, But uh, Israel is obviously not very happy about all of that. Yair Lapid, the Israeli prime minister, is going to be visiting Washington later on this week for a uh, last-ditch attempt uh, to convince uh, President Biden not to uh, go ahead uh, with this agreement that essentially is going to allow uh, the Iranians to uh, be able to develop their nuclear ambitions. Uh, Another uh, interesting article that uh, ran earlier today uh, says that uh, the amount of uh, sophisticated centrifuges used to uh, refine uranium to weapons-grade capacities uh, is actually increased. Uh, They have found these in Natanz. Uh, The International Atomic Energy Agency has also cautioned uh, the people entering into this nuclear agreement that uh, Iran has not uh, provided satisfactory explanations for the fact that uh, enriched uranium has been found at several sites uh, that uh, Iran has denied having uh, in the past. So uh, what we're uh, taking a look at is uh, things heating up in the Middle East. It does appear from the sources that we've been able to uh, access that if uh, the agreement is signed, Israel will be uh, forced, in a sense, to go it alone as far as being able to deal with the Iranian nuclear threat. 
we've seen in passages like Zechariah chapter 12 that uh, Israel will uh, find themselves in a situation in the future that all nations are going to be gathered against it. There is going to be isolation in Israel's future, and it uh, wouldn't surprise me if uh, these developments move in that direction. Uh, by the way, Israel is not being passive about their defense. Uh, fascinating uh, article uh, uh, reveals that an Israeli strike into Syria earlier today destroyed over 1,000, 1,000, count them, uh, Iranian missiles that were stored uh, just outside of the airport in Damascus. And a number of the technicians that were working on uh, those missiles, unfortunately, were killed as well, uh, Iranian and Syrian, in terms of their nationality. So things heating up over there, as always. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And, uh, boy, as far as that region goes, it does appear uh, that Iran is uh, pushing its agenda in uh, Iraq, uh, there was a sort of a, a balance of, uh, of power that was going on there, uh, but uh, apparently uh, the spiritual leader that was backing the current sort of le- uh, Iranian-leading uh, uh, government there in Iraq uh, decided to resign, and uh, when he resigned, uh, the new guy who came in uh, gave full allegiance to uh, the uh, mad mullahs, the Ayatollah Khomeini in Tehran. Well, that has generated uh, riots all across Baghdad, including uh, some uh, fairly uh, familiar and reminiscent pictures of the U.S. Embassy there in Iraq being surrounded by protesters. Uh, just pray for the wherewithal and uh, the, the safety of the uh, people there, uh, that, uh, that we don't end up with another Iranian hostage crisis this time going on in Iraq. But uh, that, in a nutshell, is what's going on in that neck of the woods. Again, be praying for the peace of Jerusalem and that uh, the leadership in Israel uh, is going to be able to prevail. Uh, one other thing I would add to all of this is that it does appear that if, in fact, uh, we see Uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iranian nuclear deal going into effect, uh, this will definitely enhance the possibilities of Benjamin Netanyahu being able to put together a governing coalition in the upcoming elections that are going to be taking place in Israel in October. And uh, this is speculative, take it for what it's worth, but I do believe that if uh, Benjamin Netanyahu does uh, seize uh, control of the government again, I think you're going to see a far more hard-line engagement against Iran going on in that government, and uh, we may see some real fireworks going on in the Middle East as a result. All right, so once again, prayers for Israel and her enemies, hoping that they, of course, don't perish, but that they come to repentance like our God would want. Going out to our questions, um, I wanted to get to the emails, but this one's too good to pass up. In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks Chor- about... Corinthians? Yeah. Yes, it is spelled with a C-H yeah. in this question. Yeah, yeah, I see that, a little typo. There. About what love is and what people who love should do. A verse from that passage says, love believes all things, so if we love, should we be called to believe the Quran. This is a question from London. Well, thank you for the question, London. Obviously, when people take sections of verses, that's always the first red flag when they come up with doctrine. That is what we believe. And a good way to test this isn't just to say, well, that's wrong, and 
because I said so. You should take the application, the doctrine, what you do with this truth claim, at face value and say, does this make nonsense of other passages? Yeah. Maybe the other things that we're referring to. And if the interpretation makes nonsense of the situation, then I've misinterpreted it. And then you would look for a better interpretation. You don't say the passage in its description is the issue. You would say that your yeah. interpretation is the issue, and that's not hard to do. Yeah. But we test those things. And, and, and the, the rule of thumb about any passage of Scripture, and I'll let you go ahead and apply it to this particular passage, is this. What we say what uh, and how we define one individual passage of Scripture, or even a part of a particular passage of Scripture, has to agree with the other passages of Scripture that deal with the same subject. And what we say in broad strokes, the Bible says on a particular issue, has to agree with the particular verses that we find in the Bible. So, you know, when we compare and contrast the, the, the big picture issues, say what the Bible has to say about discernment, with the individual passages that we find in the Bible that have to do with the subject, in this case, of discerning truth from error, uh, then we can be on pretty solid footing. Uh, as far as uh, whether we are cutting it straight, if you will, whether we're really understanding what the Word of God has to say. All right, so in this example, of course, is 1 Corinthians telling us to believe everything if we're going to model love? Well, the context, obviously, of the verse is to, in the context of love by nature, believe all things, to affirm those things is true, is there another way of perhaps believing? Well, let's test the application here. In the Quran, and this is taking this at face value, you'd note, of course, I got my copy right here, and compared to my Bible, I always make sure my Quran is smaller <laughs> than my Bible. Let's yeah. uh, make sure that's at face value. And it's, it's also... Uh quite copiously marked there. Well, it <laughs> so, comes in handy yeah. when you can show people who believe in it where and when something says something and not just being disrespectful and saying, well, it says it, therefore I that settles it. You want to make sure you can show them chapter and verse where you're making claims about their book. I'd expect the same of the Bible, but I digress. Yeah. Um, in the Quran, Surah 4, that's chapter 4, and verse 157, we read, and they're saying, surely we killed the Christ Isa, son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, and they did not kill him, and they did not salaba him. That is the word crucify. It is, uh, by the way, not Arabic in the Quran. It's a Persian and a Syriac term for crucify. So very, very direct in its term. But it was made to appear to them, and surely those who disagree about him are in doubt of him. They do not have any knowledge of him except following conjecture, and they do not kill him for certain. Yet Allah raised him up to himself. Allah was dear wise. So in the Quran, Surah 4, 157, I read 158 so you get the full statement, Jesus is claimed to have not been crucified. He has not been killed. Right. He was raised right. up to Allah. Now if we compare that, to the Bible, this is the first gospel of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 31, uh, after Jesus was subjected to the first stage of a Roman crucifixion. Let's just dismiss that. Actually, I think this will settle it pretty fairly. Verse 26 says, Then they released Barabbas to them, and when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him 
to be crucified. So going all the way to the end of the process, we read in verse 49, uh, they are letting are hearing him basically quote Psalm 22 and verse 1, and they say, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to say him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So was Allah intervening? according to the Gospel of Matthew, by taking Jesus up to himself, or was he returning to his Father, which the Quran says Allah is a Father to no one. He is not begotten, nor does he beget, despite John chapter 1 saying the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 and verse 14, that is Jesus, strike two, but the point being made is that. Where did his spirit return to Allah in this case? If we're going to use God in broad strokes, it was from the cross. Right. If we go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, does it say something different about Jesus being crucified? No. No? Oh, well, okay. Uh, you're the pastor here, so let's uh, take that at face value. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke, which is very synonymous with the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 23, where it notes a very interesting thing about Jesus. And uh, again, remember, this is according to the Quran, Surah 4, 157. Jesus was not killed nor crucified. In Luke chapter 23 and verse, uh, let's see, verse 33, when they had led him to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. So one of these accounts or the other is true, but they can't both be true. We can't believe both the Quran's record of Jesus' suffering, or lack thereof, and the Bible's insistence in the fact that he was crucified. You can't have it both ways. Which is a problem because the Quran says that the Bible, the Injil, literally, is the inspired, preserved, authoritative word of Allah in Surah 1827 and 3, 1 through 3, but I digress. The point being made is, if 1 Corinthians 13, in that little smidgen of a verse, tells us to believe, meaning affirm everything to be true, otherwise we're not being loving, then we have to believe nonsense. We have to believe things that are contrary to truth. Does that fly not just with other passages of Scripture, but within that section of Scripture itself? Yeah, well, you know, again, when we take a look at the idea of what is being described there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, we see a description of what God's love is really all about. This is God's love that we are talking about here. It's obviously the kind of love that we should have for one another, but it's the it, this kind of love can only be received as a gift uh, from the Lord himself. Love's, the ability to believe lies, right? Uh, uh, no. Love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It, in what? In the truth. So before we get to the believe all things, there is an emphasis placed in that chapter as well for what is true as opposed to what is false. Yeah. So do we have to believe all truth and at the same time not believe all truth, according to 1 Corinthians 13? Well, again, the issue of truth is dealt with there, but it says that it, it uh, again, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, the idea of believing all things is clearly in the context of 1 Corinthians, talking about relationships, not talking about uh, making, uh, say, the coexist bumper sticker, uh, the law of the land. It's doctrine. It's not referring to doctrine. It's referring to relationships. Right. And, and to confirm that, like we mentioned, uh, if we want to define what the Bible is speaking of, it says, believe 
all things. Uh, we can't just say, well, uncritically, if someone comes to me and says, hey, man, I worship citrus fruit. Uh, well, okay, yeah, you know, you can believe all that because I'm being all loving. Now, that's not being all loving. First John chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is already in the world. So, you know, the theory that believes all things refers to believing any and every claim from every so-called holy book that's out there. Boy, it sure runs into a brick wall right here because we are told not to believe all things, to test all things, to test it on the doctrine of what they say specifically about the person of Jesus and what he came to do. And if they deny the message that we find within the Bible or present something else like the Quran does, we can know that this is the spirit of the Antichrist. In the case of Muhammad, he was a little a Antichrist, certainly a uh, foreshadowing of the Antichrist in terms of his ability to be able to deceive and bring wreck and ruin and misery and violence upon people. But, uh, but certainly we are never told within the Scripture just to uncritically say, well, you know, whatever floats your boat. You want to uh, follow Buddha? Fine. You want to follow Zoroaster? Fine. You want to follow Muhammad? Fine. Uh, follow Shirley MacLaine? Fine. Uh, it, it's all going to work out in the end as long as you're sincere. Well, that works well in a Peanuts cartoon, but it doesn't work well scripturally. Yeah, so, so note that point, and just to recap the emphasis— in biblical interpretation, we don't say, well, that's your interpretation, this is mine, mine's better. No, we don't say that, we demonstrate that based on what? What lines up not only with reality, but also within itself. I wouldn't want to misrepresent the Quran and point out passages in the Quran that said Jesus was yeah. crucified. Yeah. It's fairly consistent on that point, although... Uh, maybe if you have further follow-up questions, there are funny passages that say, uh, quoting Jesus apparently, uh, blessed is me the day I die, uh, the day I was born, the day I die, and the day I will be risen from the dead, but that's uh, another issue. We're talking about letting the text itself be consistent with itself, and if the Bible is fairly straightforward about the fact that there is such a thing as false belief, and that you aren't to believe those things, yeah. then that would fly in the face of the interpretation, oh, 1 Corinthians 13 says this, therefore it means this, when in fact other options are available. Make sure that when you take a passage and interpret it, you also examine other passages and say, am I out to lunch with this interpretation? Because there is another way to take that, and which one lines up the most with reality. Yeah, and, and you're going to run into that in a lot of different circumstances. Sometimes uh, people will say, you know, this is the classic one of all time. Uh, well, you know, uh, the Bible says, judge not, yeah. lest you be judged. So does that mean that we are just to uncritically look at anybody and everybody's behavior and not uh, have any kind of a uh, discernment about that particular behavior? No, Jesus himself said to the scribes and the Pharisees, judge with righteous judgment. And if you finish the verse, it notes not just that you shouldn't judge, but goes on in the very next sentence to explain how to judge. Yeah, and in fact, what Jesus was make, saying in that is not to just have some kind of uncritical, uh, ooey-gooey sort of uh, uh, elastic idea of morality. Uh, rather, he was saying, uh, when it comes to judging other people, 
uh, just realize you're going to be judged with the same standard you judge others. So deal with the plank in your eye before you go worrying about the speck in somebody else's. Especially given the fact he follows through by saying, do not cast your pearls before swine, nor give what is holy to the dogs. How do you tell the difference between someone who is and isn't swine or a dog? You have to make a judgment. Yeah. So, you know, again, it works that exact same way. And you're going to run into a lot of that uh, floating around these days. And normally when someone says, oh, you know, you're you're judging me, uh, the Bible says, don't judge. Well, you know, the best way to respond to that is just say, whoa, 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 I'm not judging you. All I'm telling you is this is what God's Word has to say about the situation you're in. If you've got a problem with that, you've got to take it up with God, because sooner or later you're going to take it up with God. And I'd prefer that to be a pleasant experience rather than one you're going to regret forever. With that said, thank you for the question, London. Here's a question from forthcoming Isaiah, who wants to know, uh, can you speak in tongues as much as you want in private to build up your spirit, or can it only be done in public with an interpreter? Uh, Both are legitimate exercises of the gift of tongues, Isaiah, and I recommend you read on your own time 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in its entirety. Uh, Chapters 12 through 14 is one collective thought about spiritual gifts, but 14 deals with this exact issue. There's a sign to believers and a sign to unbelievers. Paul makes the direct example in his own life by saying, I speak in tongues more than you all, but if I'm to speak in tongues, let it be by himself to God, not in the assembly and chaos and all that stuff one yeah, after the other. Yeah, he said, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in church, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may uh, teach others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, you know, the Apostle Paul talked about the idea of having uh, the ability to be able to express yourself in a language that you don't know, a prayer language, if you want uh, to use that particular term. Uh, you know, again, it says, what is the conclusion? I will pray with the Spirit. I'll also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. And I will also sing with the understanding. Uh, you know, but uh, when it came to in a public setting, uh, then, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 gives some instructions. Two, or at the most three, should speak, and an, an interpretation should follow. And if there's no interpretation given, the person with the gift of speaking in tongues is to speak to himself and to God. It says you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not edified. So, yeah, there is a place for the public uh, practice of speaking in tongues. It is to be very well controlled. It's not just to be a free-for-all with a hundred different people speaking in tongues all at once, and then it sort of settles down, and there's one interpretation. No, each person in turn who has that gift is to speak, and an interpretation has to follow. Uh, But uh, as far as uh, the uh, idea of uh, having a personal and private prayer language, it seems to be taught there as well. And note, those are both. It's a both and, not an either or. Just make sure, again, that the words that are coming out are ultimately understood. Otherwise, it's just meaningless noise. See 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Yeah. Dwayne wants to know, he is, uh, what are we supposed to do with old people? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a question, relative term there. The, the question Dwayne, isn't done yet, though, yeah, but I thought yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who believe in God, better, uh, who thinks they're better, they are, I guess is what you were referring to, uh, better than anyone else, because my grandma acts this way, I don't know what to do. Um, 
And I guess there's uh, no sin like an old sin or no uh, sinner like an old sinner. The point of emphasis I think that's always important to remember is when you see someone not just in old age but in any area of sin, the first and most important thing to remember, Duane, is if not by the grace of God, there I would be worse. <laughs> and that's, I think, an important area to default to because when it honestly comes down to it, it's funny how our sins tend to look the worst on other people. Right. When not just the fact that, you know, people who deal with areas of sin, you would note my struggle with the lust of the eyes, and I can be the most gracious towards other people because I've actually dealt with that in my life. I know the struggle. I have a remarkably less amount of grace to people who aren't fighting it, but that's another discussion as well. You look at people who host those sort of ministries, like our assistant pastor, Boalette, you'd never meet a more gracious guy. So the fact that you participate in an area of sin isn't going to mean that you're going to despise people or look down on people who struggle in the same way, nor am I saying, Duane, that you deal with this uh, aura of arrogance like your grandma is doing. When it comes down to it, this is the first and most important thing we always need to remember when dealing with other people. When it comes to their struggle with sin, our job is not their sanctification. The work of the Holy Spirit is dealing with these issues on many more areas of life than even we're aware of at any given time. Obviously, some areas of sin are going to be more public and palpable than others, and the areas of sin that we've neglected to deal with will become more prominent and harder to deal with the later we get in life. Why? Right. Not just because we've been failing to deal with it, but we've gotten better at it. This yeah. doesn't mean that you're not saved, but it certainly means that it's going to be a lot more difficult to enjoy your salvation later on in life. That's why they tell you, deal with your sin before it deals with you, yeah. because later <laughs> in life, again, it's going to affect a lot more different areas. For example, if someone were to struggle with an area of sexual sin in younger years, and again, I'm just using this because not to make you uncomfortable, although I do find that funny, uh, but because it's relevant to my own life. In younger years, if someone's you know struggling with pornography for yeah. existence, uh, for instance, it's going to be looked at a lot, I guess, less seriously than if someone in their older years was dealing with that same issue and it got into some illegal forms of media. They would be held yeah. liable. Yeah. Uh, if you're, you know, going around with girls in your college years, that's going to be looked at differently than if you're cheating on your spouse later in life, being a philanderer in that regard. If you're, you know, caught stealing from mama's cookie jar at a young kid, that's going to be treated differently than if you were caught embezzling funds from your company. This is the point. When we're dealing with things in early stages of life versus later, it doesn't mean that they're a worse sinner. It means that they're still the same sinner. They've just been at this longer. What needs to be done, and what needs to be done as far as you're concerned, Duane, is to pray for your grandma and to understand that this can be a reminder to you in dealing with your pride, because every story has one of two types of morals. Exemplary, I want to be like them, or cautionary, yeah. I don't want to I be, don't like, want to them. be like them. Yeah. And if your grandma is not just cautionary in one area, but exemplary in others, learn what you can from her. But if, on the other hand, there's an issue where you're just seeing this affect her walk with God, and it's breaking your heart to see, let that be a reminder to not just confront her. There may be a time and place for that as well, but show wisdom in that 
but also note as well, God's the one that ultimately deals with our hearts and changes these things more into his image. And if she still has growing up to do, then that makes her not old or young, it makes her human, no longer, not uh, at this present moment, glorified. Right. That's what we need to keep in mind. But continuing on with that point, uh, I can only speak from a uh, not too distant, but still at a distant uh, vantage point of someone who's been around the bend a few times. I've lived a life, but not a long one, as technical terms would go. Since you almost double my age, uh, what is your experience in dealing with not just personal sin, but oftentimes seeing people in unrepentant sin, not even aware of it. Well, uh, or, you know, kind of people that are, I guess, Dwayne, it seems like your question is, how do you deal with someone who's kind of stuck in their ways? They're, they're, they just have a bad attitude towards others, maybe an attitude of superiority, uh, you know, an attitude that seems to be kind of a turnoff as far as demonstrating the love of God's concern. Well, a couple of scriptures I'd point you to uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1, uh, Paul writing there says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Now notice uh, there's a balance here. We are not told to say, well, that's just the way they are. They're never going to change. Uh, you know, you're not to rebuke them. You know, we're, we're to respect the fact that they have a few years on us, and maybe they have a little bit more life experience than we do. And uh, that life experience can work in one of two ways. It can be positive in terms of walking in the wisdom and the ways of God, but uh, people will also go through life experiences that are pretty negative and uh, have left them maybe uh, angry and, and bitter. And we need to take that into account as uh, as we interact with them. I love the fact that Paul said that uh, Timothy was to uh, respond to older women as mothers. In other words, uh, you're to treat them with respect that is befitting their age and experience. But the one thing that is interesting, Paul just doesn't say, well, just leave them alone because they're older than you. You know, if you see somebody that is walking in an area of, of sin that is, you know, not only not uh, allowing them to be a, a good example of what a Christian's all about, or maybe turning other people off, uh, but, uh, but also not doing them any good. Uh, you know, look for, for teachable moments, I think, you know, when you have uh, interaction with that person. And, and, you know, I would encourage you to even phrase things in a way that uh, you do it in a way that they're going to be able to agree with you. You know, like saying things like, you know, uh, you know, Grandma, isn't it wonderful that uh, the Lord is calling us to become more and more like Jesus? And you might even want to lead by just saying, yeah, you know, this is just something that the Lord taught me about, you know, in my character uh, last week. You know, I was kind of jumping all over somebody, and, you know, I found I was kind of being a little bit arrogant, and this is what the Lord showed me. And it's funny, when you bring that up, and you're not coming at them in an accusatory way, but you're leading, in a sense, with your own weakness. Uh, how people jump in and say, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've struggled with that myself. And, uh, so, you know, just kind of bringing it back to, boy, you know, isn't it amazing that the Lord wants us to be like himself? And, and he was so humble towards other people and so loving and, and not arrogant, you know? I mean, you might even just say, yeah, I was just reading uh, Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verse 3 where it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others higher than himself. Uh, let us not look after our own things, 
but uh, also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you just say, you know, Grandma, what do you think it means? You know, you've, you've been a Christian a lot longer than I am. What does it mean to have that kind of uh, an attitude? You know, have you ever had the opportunities to be able to, you know, look at others as uh, maybe more important than yourself? And then get her to share. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen as a result of that conversation? Maybe after you leave, the Lord, through His Spirit, is going to convict your grandma over some areas in her life that do need to be changed. But uh, one thing I've discovered the hard way, Dwayne, as a pastor, is this. If I try to play Holy Spirit, if I try to change somebody's attitude or their action that I don't particularly like, uh, boy, I can really find myself spinning my wheels. Uh, Only the Lord can change somebody's heart. And so uh, I kind of go back to that old adage that I learned in uh, seminary, Sean, it does far more good to plead with God about men than to plead with men about God. Uh, and I think if you come in guns a-blazing and say, you know, Grandma, I notice you have a really arrogant attitude, and you tend to think you're better than other people, they're going to get their hackles up and say, well, who are you to say something like that? Aren't you doing the very same thing? So, you know, focus the conversation on the character of Christ and what the Scripture has to say. And if you can lead your grandma to be able to share some of the things maybe that she's learned in the past, but maybe she's forgotten in the past, then the Lord can bring those things up and use them to change your heart. All right. Um, quick follow-up question from Isaiah. His uh, friend brought up the situation about two weeks ago that uh, took place in Texas where they passed a bill uh, limiting public so- uh, forms of education and uh, libraries, basically, from hosting explicit and pornographic LGBTQ, you know, whatever, plus all those uh, Well, and heterosexual pornography as well. Yeah, and of course, there's few people that would see anything wrong with that unless you have an agenda in mind, but the liberals, of course, rightly pointed out that the Bible is honest history, and in containing said material, they also pull it and the Diary of Anne Frank and others from their shelves, and uh, basically the friend was throwing an eight-day fit and saying that we're in Nazi Germany and so forth. Um, This isn't a Bible question, but, oh boy, the question is, are false Christians going to usher in the Antichrist? No, the only person who's ironically going to usher in the Antichrist is the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians 2 is very explicit. When he's taken out of the way, the lawless one will be revealed. It's not our actions, it's the Holy Spirit's withdrawal of himself. But let me uh, finish the point. When we're talking about dumb laws here locally in the United States and our opinions thereof, um, if we're informed about the issue, make sure Okay, let let me just throw that whole thing out. This one is actually uh, very much a serious issue that we need to address right now. Um, Kind of how the Pharisees sided with Rome during the crucifixion of Jesus is this ushering in, uh, you know, the judgment of God and so forth. What was the reason Jesus was crucified? Was it because faulty Jews compromised with their government and passed laws that ultimately resulted in our Lord being crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? Well, uh, Simon Peter didn't pull any punches about the fact that talking to the same Sanhedrin that uh, did railroad Jesus into crucifixion, he called them murderers. You murdered him, but uh, it was also something that was done in harmony with uh, God's plan to uh, bring about uh, uh, redemption. His exhortation was, yeah, you guys are morally culpable for all of this, but uh, God still holds out uh, his hands to uh, restore you and to receive you and even refresh you. So, you know, when it comes to 
who crucified Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? No, the Bible says that uh, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, all of us. Uh, that's how God demonstrated his love towards us. And as far as, uh, you know, the, uh, the word fascism is being thrown around a lot in political circles. The President of the United States said that half the country are semi-fascists. You know, the rhetoric's getting a little bit explosive. What's a a biblical point of view on all that? Uh, Maybe the most important uh, passage that we can find is the last verse in Romans chapter 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, the minute I look at somebody and label them, especially with a hot-button word like a fascist, um, well, what does that mean exactly? And if someone brings that up, I think one of the most important things that we can do, Isaiah, is to get them to clarify their terms. Okay, when you use the word fascist, what exactly do you mean? You know, well, you know, like, like, like the Nazis, well, okay, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the Nazis? and The National Aryan Socialist well, Party? Well, yeah, you know, let me... I'm not you, socialist. You know, well, the Nazis believed in one strong central government. Uh, they believed in taking away the rights of individuals to help facilitate that uh, strong central government. Uh, they also uh, believed that any opposition to that government should be uh, strictly censored. Well... Um, I'm certainly not in favor of that. Are you in favor of that? I don't, I don't think a whole lot of people who would describe themselves uh, on either side of the political spectrum would be in favor of that sort of thing. Nobody is rooting for Nazi Germany to return. So do you think that, and maybe the question to throw out is, do you think throwing out such hot-button terms is really helpful at all uh, in terms of... Uh, getting the country where it needs to go, you know, and just kind of boiling it down to, you know, individual, uh, you know, interaction. You know, it's really easy to paint a broad strokes picture of someone who's not in the room, you know, this uh, sort of uh, threatening group out there, whether you want to call uh, the threat communists, whether you want to call them fascists, whatever. Uh, You know, the Bible tells us that we are to minister to people, that we are to ask the Lord uh, to let our speech be grace seasoned with salt so that we might know how to answer each and every one. A couple things I've just learned over time is this. Um, As far as politics go, as far as joining a political tribe is concerned, and my side's right and your side's wrong and all this, I really try to avoid it uh, for this reason. My main goal, my point of emphasis, is to get God's truth to as many people as possible, to make Jesus the focus of what's going on in these discussions. You know, and and so uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be disagreements. You know, the whole deal came up uh, about uh, the idea of paying off student loans, and uh, there were an awful lot of people who said, well, you know, doesn't your Bible uh, you know, say that uh, we are to take care of widows and orphans in their distress, and that we are to care for uh, the the uh, the less well off. Well, certainly, but not in the sense of say using the coercive form of government uh, to say take tax money and give it to other people. 
we are to be about the business of directly helping people as much as we possibly can. So, you know, when we get down to the, the nuts and bolts of things, if we can bring it back to our own personal responsibilities to walk in love, to not throw out hot button words, to not write people off and categorize them and, and treat them as if they're the enemy and gin up an awful lot of hatred, uh, if we can let our speech be grace seasoned with salt, if we can, even in maybe some of these hot button issues, bring the focus back to the person of Jesus and how he dealt with people in uh, certain circumstances, even uh, Roman centurions, uh, individuals that represented the heavy hand of Rome, which was oppressive on the Jewish people. It's fascinating to me that uh, Jesus went out of his way to heal the servant of a centurion and even commend him for having faith. So, you know, when we look at things, we need to be careful that we're not buying into tribalism, we're not buying into factionalism. In fact, the book of Galatians, one of the surest signs that we're walking in the deeds of the flesh, which aren't going to lead us anywhere good, is the idea of factions and dissensions and quarrelings and so forth. So, you know, if we can bring people back to focusing in on who Jesus is and what he's all about in these conversations and not fall into the trap of labeling others just because they might be labeling us or putting us down or using hot button words. Uh, you know, again, a, a soft answer turns away wrath. Uh, we find in the book of Proverbs, I think we need to become a lot more skilled in using that in these kind of interactions. Otherwise it just becomes a big, uh, dust up and, nothing good happens. And also note, something good can come out of it, because when people start to show you their true colors, the proverb is fulfilled. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We can be thankful, at least in the United States and Europe, that in this political climate, people have become so trained to be inflammatory, whether that's through the internet or not, you can be the judge. I, the th I, think, I think it has a lot to do with it, but go but ahead. But note that this shows people who their friends really are. And if someone's going to address you, speaking to Isaiah or anyone else listening, as a Christian nationalist, or to default to these well, outright yeah, the, propaganda terms... And Christian nationalist, that's that's not a helpful term. It's not yeah. a term. Yeah. It's used to demonize moral people. And here's the point. If someone's going to demonize you, or demand of you, not in so many words, but expect of you, that if you're going to be a decent person, you have to compromise your Christian values, your Christian ethics, yeah. then that is not the kind of person you'd consider a friend. They were only kissing you, so to speak. They were only kind to you at a certain point because they thought that you were of them. But as Jesus himself said, we are not of the world. Otherwise, the world would love its own. But because you have loved me, now the world hates you. Yeah, so you, here's the point. called out of it. Yeah. yeah. So note the point that's being made. While politics may be divisive, truth is also divisive. While people say, don't cause division, Christ caused division. If you see people in your life that are becoming more caustic, meaning mouthy, more evil outright in the promotion and celebration of things like hedonism exposed to children and so forth, then by all means, take that as the God's not-so-subtle tap on the shoulder and saying, yeah. I'm showing you this person's not a friend. And if you're going to engage with them in any way, note what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 quite candidly, bad, or 15, bad company corrupts good character. 
if this person's influence on you is leading you away from me, then either distance yourself or understand that person needs to come to me before this relationship can be anything but unhealthy. So that would be my advice. Yeah. Um, question from David. He wants to know uh, clarification about Romans 7, 8 through 9, where Paul states, For apart from the law, sin was dead. Where I'm confused is sin was definitely a part of humanity prior to the law. In the context of these verses, he believes Paul is referring to the law from Moses, not the moral law, which is the point he begins in Romans 1. How was sin dead before the law came into being if people still sinned before the law? Uh, thank you, David, for the question. Yeah, let me go one verse back and note the point that he's making. Yeah, that's a good he's one. Not making. Yep, yep. Uh, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, what brought that up? Well, you start in Romans chapter 7 and verse 1, and he's making a point that flows and builds off of these six chapters that have led up to this point. And this is, again, using the illustration of a husband and a wife that if she physically dies, or if he physically dies is the illustration, she's no longer bound to the law of her marital loath. She doesn't commit adultery if she remarries, but right. if she does remarry while she's not unmarried, she's an adulteress. Right. Now, the law is very straightforward. It exposes sin, and this is the point that he makes in verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Now, this is where people would then ask, is the law sin? Since it exposes or leads people into committing all these sins, if it causes a woman who marries to commit adultery, if the law states you've been married before, well, note that would still be a moral sin, right? But let's just build on his point. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known, here's his own struggle, covetousness, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And then he goes on to say, and the commandment which was to bring life, notice, and he'll build on this point as well in verse 13, yeah. but if he says, okay, I suddenly became a sinner, why? Not because I was always a covetous person, but something in me just heard the words, you shall not covet, and I suddenly felt this desire to want to covet everything right. that I didn't have. Right. And he says, I found, that was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, the issue, not the law, sin, deceived me. Uh, taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and, and is just and good. What's going to properly contextualize this, you tied it back to Romans chapter 1. Let me scooch just slightly a bit farther than that in Romans chapter 2, where Paul makes this interesting contrast between the people who have the law and right. don't have the law, the right. topics of chapters 1 and 2. Right. Chapter 2 makes an interesting observation. Those who died apart from the law will perish what? apart from the law. They won't be judged on the basis of something they never knew. Yeah, they, but, won't, they won't be judged, for instance, for breaking the Sabbath. Right, but yeah. those who were under the law will perish under the law. And right. then goes on to quote the Old Testament saying what? That if I 
do the law. It's not the the knowers, but the obeyers of the law that are justified. And then he goes on in chapter 3 to say, there's no one who obeys a law. (laughs) So one group's perishing and the other could have had life, but is perishing anyway, regardless of what they know. What do we need? 4 through 6 establishes that point. What does 7 say? But I'm still a sinner. What does chapter 8 say? But we've been saved, and we're going to continue to be saved until salvation's fully culminated. Follow the flow of the whole thought. But again, go one verse prior to chapter 7 and verse 8, which is verse 7, if those of you doing subtraction at home, and note the point that he's (laughs) making. He's not defining the fact, and this is probably where the confusion is, the distinction between the moral law and the written law. He's pointing out the confusion that some people may have, and again, let me just read it word for word one more time, in asking, is the law sin? No, Paul makes the point in illustration, I'm the problem, not the law. The law made me aware of sin, but by that awareness, sin would even use that. And uh, I'll use an example in my own life. Um, When I tend to struggle the most with lust, again, I seek a lot of accountability circles, I put a lot of filters on my computer and stuff, but when I know, and this was especially true this last week, when I struggle the most is when I'm sick. Right when I can't right. go to work, when I can't seek social accountability, exercise, do something to distract isolation. Me. Yeah, yeah, that's when I struggle with lust the most. Now, yeah. here's where I got into this Paul the Apostle mode. Whenever I felt sick, then I would suddenly want to lust. Why? Because the association with sickness in my flesh also associated it with quote not the opportunity but permission to sin. That's how twisted we are. That's how twisted I am. Mm -hmm. And it even got so far as to me wanting to make myself sick in order to give myself a chance to engage in lust. So note this. The issue isn't with the fact that lust is wrong that made me a sinner. Paul's point was this. If I have any opportunity to sin, my flesh will find a way, because the law is not the issue, I am, and that's what God came to fix. Even good things like the law. Right. We're so fallen and twisted and sinful, we'll take something that is holy, righteous, and good like the law and use it as an opportunity to be able to stir up all kinds of sin. Yeah, so let us know if that helps you out, David. The point of emphasis is in verse 7. 8 and 9 is an illustration, then 10 and onward is an application, Right, and it flows from a whole conversation that spans the whole book. Yeah, Let us know if that's clear. Uh, let's go out to some—here's uh, a question from uh, Jermile, who wants to know, or basically, um, when Christ died for all sins, why is it that most Jews don't believe Jesus? Well, actually, as far as an ethnic demographic goes, more Jews believe in Jesus as their Messiah they're saved than any other ethnic demographic as far as a percentage is concerned. We'd like the numbers to be higher, maybe 100% like Zechariah prophesied, but when we're talking about the issue of why is it that so few Jews believe in Jesus as their Messiah, is there a scriptural reason for that? Well, a couple things. First of all, Jermile, let's face it, uh, if we want to talk about Gentiles as a percentage, uh, you know, how many people have a genuine born-again relationship uh, with with Jesus, probably uh, a small handful. Uh, you know, when the Bible speaks about the fate of the Jewish people, uh, we are told that, uh, again, a couple of principles come into play. First of all, to whom much is given, much is required. 
Jesus was the one who came to the Jewish people. They had the up close and personal front row center seat to be able to see his miracles, to hear his teaching, to know that he rose from the dead. Uh, we are told in the book of Romans that uh, because of this, we, uh, God is about the business right now of doing a new and a different and a unique work. It is the work that he does that we call the church. That is this odd group of some Jews, mostly Gentiles, that make up what we call the body of Christ right now. Certainly there are Jewish believers, as you've mentioned, but uh, right now it's, it's kind of this mixed bag. From the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven to the time that he comes for the church at the uh, moment that we call the rapture, we're going to see God work through this conglomeration of Jews and Gentiles. And if you want to kind of see how that works out uh, dynamically, uh, read the uh, second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul goes into detail and explains that quite a bit. We are told that right now a hardening has happened in part, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. The Bible says there is going to come a time in the future once God is done gathering the last Gentile will be part of this, as I mentioned, this mixed bag of Jews and Gentiles we call the church today, and then God will again turn and deal with the world through the Jewish people. We are told, so all Israel will be saved at the end of Romans chapter 11. So God definitely still has a plan for the Jewish people. God is still working out that plan with the Jewish people. God has miraculously preserved the Jewish people against all odds down through time because they yet have a future in God's program. When uh, the final seven years that we call the tribulation comes in, why is it seven years, Sean? Because that's exactly how Daniel was, not that he, but that he was given, spelled it out, that 490 years were set up for mankind's ultimate redemption to God, see Daniel 24 through 26, that at the span of these, at the 39th Daniel week, 9, 24 through 26, yeah. I say yeah. chapters. Yeah. Anyway, there's not a Daniel 24. Yeah. Let, me, yeah. let, let me see that publicly. Yeah. Uh, from that time to the 39th week, Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, literally executed. Then at the last week, seven-year period of time, there would be a false prince that would rise up, and he goes for the next three chapters to describe what that would be like. Yeah, and so God still has a seven-year period of time where he is going to make good all the promises he made to the Jewish people. And, and Jermile, if you want to see how faithful God is going to be about all of that, read through Daniel chapter 9, because God still has that plan for them that he is going to fulfill. And if you want also a clarification on the spiritual state of Israel as it stands today, we recommend Ezekiel 37, the famous Valley of Dry Bones, that God's first going to physically revive Israel, then spiritually. And as is God's way of doing things always, A, it's not in our timing. We'd like it immediately. He's yeah. going to do it in a process. But also note as well, he's also going to do it not just uh, gradually, but set over and for the intended purposes that's going to bless the entire world. And you, uh, just again, we'll go more into this tomorrow, but in your master's thesis, you went into a uh, passage of scripture, Romans 9 through 11, yeah. that discussed this in detail. We recommend that too. Yeah. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry 
at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.